This podcast discusses sensitive topics that may contain graphic depictions of violence, substance use, self-harm, explicit language, and other content that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. I feared him. I hated him. I loved him. I wanted someone to be my friend. I wanted someone to love me. I wanted someone to know what was happening to me. I wanted someone to save me. Welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. You are invited to open your hearts and ears to the powerful stories of others. Here, you are no longer alone. You hear your experience, your strength, your hope in the words of others. Join us on this journey as we conquer our past, live in the present, and dream for our future. Together we choose to free our story. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. My name is Kevin Colbert. And I'm so happy you are here listening to episode 8 with Jim. Jim is a very close friend of mine. Um, you know, to be frank, we were, we were in kind of rock bottom at the same time. And really, I feel like mutually helped each other to and supported each other to take the steps to overcome the struggles and battles that we were going through. Jim has an amazing, powerful, really heavy story. And when I think of Jim, I just think of it's a miracle that he survived, that he's still acting and thriving in a way that he is today with all that he experienced. Jim is a very sweet, compassionate, loving caring, emotional person, and and I truly think that the world benefits just from his existence. So I'm just going to let us dive into this one. Jim knows his story best. Jim's going to explain it the best. I think we also touch in a lot of cool things during the Q&A, a lot of very insightful moments. Um, Jim just has a way of really breaking things down to the truth um, and understanding in all the messiness and stickiness what the truth of a situation is. And so I think we do get to a lot of truths during our Q&A and during his story. So um, it's definitely a cool one to listen to all the way through. So let's start it off. Let's dive in with Jim's story. My name is Jim. I was born and raised in San Diego. My parents divorced when I was three. My mother went to be with the man she was having an affair with, and my sister and I lived with my father. We visited my mother and stepfather on weekends and returned to my father's house on Sunday evenings. My father remarried, not for love, but mostly to have someone around to help raise us. By the age of four, I had four parents, a father, a mother, a stepfather, and a stepmother. 
Already I was learning that relationships were short-lived, spouses were expendable, and people, even family, were transitory. Consequently, I also believed I was expendable and unworthy of attention and love. I don't remember having hobbies or dreams or interests. I was a sensitive boy and clung to my mother. My gender was fluid long before gender fluidity was a phrase. I identified with girls more than boys. I enjoyed playing traditionally girls' games like jump rope and hopscotch. I received trains and model sets for my birthday and Christmas, but all I wanted to do was roller skate and put lipstick and eyeshadow on my sister's Barbie doll bust. I struggled to make friends. Other boys didn't like me, and I knew I was different from girls, even though I identified with them. My stepfather, who called me a faggot when I was six because I yelped when I couldn't catch a ball that was thrown to me. I was shamed and threatened out of my own self-expression. When I was eight, Barbara Streisand's film, A Star is Born, was released. I found her talented and beautiful and strong, and I loved the female-empowered songs she sang. I listened to Queen Bee and Woman in the Moon until I wore out my record. When I look back at my childhood, and I don't recall much before the abuse started, I have the impression that my creativity, imagination, and flamboyance were squashed early on by my family of origin. I don't know how anyone didn't realize I was gay. I tried to hide parts of myself. For years, I played soccer, but I would have chosen dance if I knew it existed. Being a tender boy, I was bullied at school. The neighbor boys teased me for going to a private, private religious school simply because it was different from theirs, and they threatened me because I was different. I played soccer, and I was the outcast, humiliated and called queer, fat, and other names. I had one best friend from 12 through 16, and I spent a lot of time at his house with his family. Otherwise, life was unrelenting. It seemed everyone saw me as different. My sister, two and a half years older, didn't want me around. She made that very clear. I remember once walking down the street on the sidewalk, and she said, Jimmy, walk in front of me or behind me, but not with me. I don't want anyone to know we are related. The abuse started around the time I was four, maybe earlier. My stepfather was hyper-masculine, angry, and strong, and I feared him. I can't recall. I can't recall all the times my stepfather threatened my mother and became violent, and all the times my mother, sister, and I fled the house. Once I remember putting on my bathing suit to go swimming, then hearing shouting and screams and being scooped up and urged to run to the car. All in a moment, a fun afternoon turned into horror. One minute, I was tugging at my bathing suit, and the next, running for the car, jumping in and driving away. Another time, I remember standing at the screen door to the backyard and seeing my stepfather hold a rake over my mother, and I waited there, watching to see if he was going to hit her with it or run it down the front of her body. I watched, paralyzed, wondering if she would get away or be maimed or worse. The next thing I knew, we were running for the car again. At first, I didn't understand what was going on. It took me years to understand, really. But somehow, in these crazy moments, I learned almost instinctually to protect my mother. If she looked worried or sad, my job was to make her smile. I took on the role of comedian and court jester, responsible for making her laugh and forget her pain. I'd make light of our fast getaway. I'd dig into her purse for a cigarette even before she knew she wanted it. 
She'd smile and start to calm down. I became very good at my job. We'd go to one of my mom's friend's homes, hang out for an hour or two, then return to my stepfather's house where my mother and he reconciled. I never understood any of it. Nothing was talked about. He'd look remorseful. They'd kiss, embrace, and get back to normal. Not that long ago, I realized one of the hardest parts was being left in the doorway of of their house, wondering what I was supposed to do, feel, understand about the emotional flip-flops of the previous several hours. We never stopped to talk about anything that had happened. I just followed her lead. Oh, now we just go back to normal. But inside, I was fearful, uncertain, unsafe, and hyper-aware, and waiting for it all to happen again. Also from the age of four until I was 12, I was sexually and physically abused by my stepbrother, who was, I think, about three times my age when it began. It often started as play and then quickly turned violent. For instance, we'd be swimming in the pool, jumping off the diving board or playing Marco Polo, and the next thing I knew, I was being held underwater. I remember several times being nearly drowned in the pool. He held me underwater so often, I started to practice holding my breath as long as I could, just to prepare myself for the inevitable. Other times, we'd be playing in the den, and he would shove me inside an open hideaway bed and then close it on me. It was dark and hard and cramped in there, with springs and metal pressing into my head and my body. Sometimes he'd pin me down and tickled me until it hurt. Other times, he scared me on purpose, making me move closer to him in the dark and then rub against me. Sometimes he acted like my friend and asked me to sleep in his bed with him and then told me to rub his back. He forced me to do things in the bathtub a six-year-old should never know about. And for all of these things, my stepbrother forced on me. He threatened my life if ever I told anyone about it. The next morning, He'd have me laughing at the breakfast table, and I longed again to be his friend. The relationship I had with my stepbrother mirrored that of my mother and stepfather. The cycle of violence and neglect and mild kindnesses to smooth things over for a time. I thought this was what relationships looked like. I believed the violence was punishment for my being bad, my fault. I tried to be perfect. I tried to do whatever he asked of me. I learned to become a chameleon within my environment in order to get along, keep the peace, live. I just knew if I did everything right, the abuse throughout the house would stop. And if it didn't stop, it only meant I was not doing good enough. I feared him. I hated him. I loved him. I wanted someone to be my friend. I wanted someone to love me. I wanted someone to know what was happening to me. I wanted someone to save me. I wanted to try to make it all right. I blamed myself when he didn't want me around. I felt shame when I did the things I did to keep in his good graces. I became oversensitive, self-loathing, and insecure. I was hypervigilant, always aware of where my stepfather, stepbrother, and my mother were in the house, what their moods were, if my stepfather was drinking, and how much. I learned how to be an appeaser, a mediator. I was an enabler and a caretaker. I made drinks for my stepfather, fetching him beers, and was a consummate host at the age of seven and eight during parties, running back and forth to the cooler or refrigerator or wherever the alcohol was kept to retrieve a drink for him and a thirsty guest. 
while this was what weekends looked like, my weekdays were spent in one of two alternating modes. The first was worrying about my mother. I wondered if she lived through the week, always anxious to see her round the corner on a Friday afternoon to pick me up. When I wasn't worried, I was dissociating to avoid remembering the abuse and feeling of pain. As a result, I dissociated a lot as a child. I'd return from my mother's on a Sunday, go to my bedroom to do homework, and I sat at my desk and forgot where I was and what I was supposed to be doing. The smallest things became overwhelming. There were many times I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. I couldn't feel my limbs. I didn't know where I was, and everything happened in slow motion. I couldn't pay attention in school. I couldn't do my homework. I was sent home with green slips, and pink slips came in the mail warning my parents of my poor performance in school, and I just hid them behind the desk in my bedroom. I couldn't focus, think, retain information. In fact, nothing really mattered. I knew I was going to die young, so I stopped applying myself. I didn't have goals or dreams. When I was 11, my father and my stepmother divorced. My father had found another woman, and I couldn't take having yet another new parent. It was clear she wasn't interested in children, so I moved in with my mother and stepfather full-time. This was the perfect opportunity anyway. I thought I could save my mother's life if I were there every day. I believed my presence would be enough to keep her safe. I also thought if I were the best boy in the world, that would be enough to save both of us. The abuse from my stepbrother continued until I was about 12. Around this age is when I started having thoughts that I might be gay. One night I had a panic attack and told my mother I might be gay. And she said, do you want to be gay? Knowing what she wanted to hear and afraid to admit it out loud, I said, no. Her answer was simple. Then if you don't want to be gay, then you're not gay. For years, she believed it was a choice, a phase, a fad. That's what a lot of people at the time thought. If not that, they thought homosexuality was a disease, right? It was reiterated here. Don't tell the truth. Don't tell your truth. Keep your secrets hidden. My stepfather's abuse against my mother and me continued until I was 15. In 10th grade, my third high school, my stepfather pulled a gun on us, and I knew we were finally going to die. From the top of the stairs, I saw my mother, her hand in between the hammer of the gun, pleading with him. I was told to go to my room, which I did. I sat there and cried until my stepfather came in, and he was crying, lamenting his behavior. I had never seen him like this, and I wondered where my mother was. Somehow, she had gotten free, yelled my name, grabbed me from my bedroom, and we fled. We immediately went to the nearest grocery store, and my mother called her high school sweetheart. That night, we slept in his camper, just a few blocks from our home. How did she already have another man on the side, I wondered. It was another couple of years of back and forth between my stepfather and her high school sweetheart. I got pulled out of one school, enrolled into another. I was being driven to school on the backs of motorcycles, in trucks by strangers, and walking long distances. I was receding further into my own anxiety and depression, and food became my closest friend. During these years, in which I attended four different high schools, I ate my feelings and got fat and invisible. My mother and I were rarely alone. We were either with one man or the other. Except for a few brief months, we lived in a motorhome when neither of them would take my mother back. And for a short stint, I lived with my paternal grandparents in their mobile home. 
Making sense of my life was an impossibility. I mostly dissociated through these years. I didn't have time or energy to think about the coming or going. It was a well-worn habit at this point. Like a zombie, I just went wherever my mother told me to go. Later, as my homosexuality became clear to me, my confusion nevertheless con continued. When I was 18, I came out to my mother, and she did not respond well. The woman I had comforted, made laugh in the middle of terror, and secretly fought for and tried to protect, had further abandoned and shamed me in this crucial moment of my forming part of my identity. Like everything else up to this point, she made it all about herself. She believed she was to blame. She said, I'd rather you were blind because then it wouldn't be my fault. She sent me to a psychologist thinking I could be cured. She was angry for a few years. And again, I felt the neglect I felt when she left me when I was three. For years, I wondered if I was gay because of the abuse. If I hadn't been abused, would I be straight? It's impossible to break. It's impossible to embrace one's gender when it's constantly questioned and shamed. As a result, I hated myself, hated my life. Shame kept me from coming out. I internalized everything. Self-hatred and secrecy continued into my 20s. Adulthood was approaching and I was poorly equipped for much. But externally, it may have looked like, to some like I had had so much figured out. I had learned so many ways of being that saw me through hell. I learned how to be my mother's best friend. I was funny and fun. I had learned how to be a chameleon, changing my personality to match that of the person in front of me. Many of my character defects have been with me since before I was even aware. For most of my life, I thought they were merely personality traits. Deep down, I had been a worrier. I'm hypervigilant. I'm a controller. I'm a codependent martyr with a penchant for people-pleasing and perfectionism. When I finally entered the workforce, I tried to make everyone appreciate my worth, my work ethic, my sense of humor, my kindness, my self-deprecation, anything that would win them over. Meanwhile, I never let anyone get to know the real me. In fact, I had no idea who I really was. Rather than get to know people for who they were, I arrived suspicious and untrusting. Nonetheless, I immediately became a doer, a caretaker, a fixer, an appeaser. In relationships, it was the same. I was either a doormat with no opinions, or more often, I was the controller, the fixer, the manipulator, and the manager of the relationship. When I was 25, I met a man, my savior. He was like a parent and I the child. I let him be my caretaker, and I, be, I did pretty much whatever I wanted. We had 11 years of companionship. We had sex a couple of times during the first three or four months of our relationship, then never again. Yet during our relationship, he saw me through undergrad and moved with me to Louisiana so I could attend graduate school. While there, I had an affair. I became depressed and suicidal. I went to therapy, but the lack of love in my relationship never came up, and I still hadn't learned how to talk about my feelings. I had feelings. I always had feelings. I just never put words to them. When I was 36, I blindsided him, and all in an instant, I walked out on him. I was lost and figured there had to be more to life than a sexless relationship. I thought about it incessantly for a long time, and all in one moment, I walked in, told him I was leaving, and I left. 
I had learned how to do this for my mother over and over. That was the way you ended relationships, right? You just walk out when you finally had enough. After only four months, I met my next partner of 11 years. I was just starting to live by myself for the first time in my life at 36. I was just getting to know myself, and I was happy when I met my new boyfriend and I moved to San Francisco. This was my first egalitarian relationship. At first blush, we were equals and mutually happy. In actuality, we were codependent. Without the proper tools, communication started to fall apart at different times throughout our relationship. Like other gay men in San Francisco who create their own rules in the name of freedom from heteronormativity, I asked to open the relationship. He begrudgingly did. I wanted to be open and free, and we'd be communicative and happy. It quickly turned into don't ask, don't tell. The only time we talked about what we were up to was when one of us got an STI. I fucked around, he fucked around. Eventually, he fucked around with men and meth and lied about it for a year or more. He finally told me he was using meth, and right after his disclosure, suddenly his meth use was bringing up all the childhood trauma I never dealt with. I wondered whether I was safe in my own home. I wondered if my partner was coming home high, low, or even coming home at all. And if he did, would he be kind, mean, angry, pick a fight? Would he need medical attention? Would I have to save him from himself? After all, saving people had been my job for a very long time. Like an addict, he lied about his behavior. And like a codependent, I tried to carry him and fix him and control him. And yet, like my childhood, I couldn't control anything. I just fell apart. I didn't eat well. I stopped sleeping. I couldn't cope with the day-to-day, -day, just like when I was a child. I couldn't concentrate at work. I struggled with just about everything. I couldn't help him enough. I couldn't fix him, but I kept trying. I supported him. I nagged him. I fought with him. We had been going to couples therapy. By July, he got himself into outpatient rehab. He was working on his recovery, but by that point, I was a mess. I was still anxious and depressed, and I was suicidal, but not prepared to act on it. I wanted to walk outside and get hit by a bus. By August 2015, our couples therapist helped me find a place to get, go get help for my depression and anxiety and the memories of my childhood trauma that were resurfacing. I flew to Nashville to attend a program at the Bridge to Recovery in Bowling Green, Kentucky for two weeks. Most nights at the retreat, we attended all kinds of 12-step meetings, whether they pertained or not. Alcoholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Sex Addicts Anonymous. It was a great place to meet other people with similar struggles and with solutions. While there, we had many modes of therapy and counseling, including group therapy, equine therapy, brain spotting, one-on-one -on -one counseling, and much more. I learned to meditate. I learned to ground myself, calm myself, recognize somatic responses to all kinds of triggers. I learned boundaries and coping skills. For the first time in my life, I started to learn to love myself. We did work around grief and something called the empty chair exercise and so much more. The question was no longer, what's wrong with me? But instead, what happened to me? Which was such a benevolent and kind way of looking at my past. I ended up staying a month at the bridge. Since then, I have learned a lot about boundaries, self-care, 
and much, much more. I finally had a say in what I will and won't put up with in my life from me and from others. My relationship ended just months later in November of 2015. I learned to live alone for the first time in my life. After crying every day for the first two or three years, I've learned how to take care of myself, give myself compassion and kindness, live with honesty and integrity every day, one day at a time. And I'm slowly learning how to reach out to others every time I realize I can't do it all on my own. Over the past four years of recovery and therapy, I've learned to love myself a little bit more. Through therapy, I've learned to listen to my inner child, my younger parts who never got the attention and nurturing they wanted and deserved. Many of my emotions and sense of myself got stuck in the past. I've done a lot of deep work to update my old parts. Many of my young parts still believed I was six years old and helpless. These days, I'm telling my brain and my body how old I really am, how safe I really am, how accomplished and successful and lovable I really am. At the bridge, I learned how to meditate, which these days is the best way for me to look inside. Most of my life, I believed that if I could control my environment and others, everything would be fine. Meditation has helped me in numerous ways. It slows me down so I can focus on what's most important. I get in touch with my feelings, my thoughts, and my body. It also helps me remember all of the things in the world I cannot control and frankly don't want to. Along with daily meditation, I read from several books. I have quotes and mantras and sayings that I read as a reminder that I'm safe, loved, and belong on this earth. Meditation also puts me in touch with my higher power. Prior to recovery, I didn't have one. I never saw the value. Who needs a higher power when you're expecting to die? But now I do. My higher power is personal, benevolent, and empowering. It's the best I can do to have wants and desires and wishes, acknowledge them, and then give them up to my higher power. I still actively pursue my goals and my dreams, which I have now, but my higher power helps me not get too obsessive about them. That's my morning practice. And at night before I go to bed, I write at least 10 things in my gratitude journal. I've connected with old friends, sharing with them who I really am. I've made, made new friends as well. I have found that the more I learn to love myself and take care of myself, I am able to step further into the world and let people in. I have a supportive boyfriend. He is generous, kind, fun, funny, and thoughtful. He has great freedom of expression, something I'm still working on. He knows my story, my history, my trauma, and he holds space for all of that. Finding a full range of free self-expression is something I continue to work on. That goes for both my gender expression and my creative self-expression. Within the last couple of years, I've realized the creativity and imagination I had as a child was not completely lost, but has in fact been with me this entire time. I found theater as a preteen and performed off and on over the years. I've drawn and painted also. I went to grad school receiving an MFA in poetry from LSU. I performed drag at most every possible venue in San Francisco, and I'm currently writing a screenplay about my childhood trauma. But I'm reclaiming my story and retelling it for a better, more empowering outcome than what I experienced as a child. It's time I tell a different story. Thank you. 
Welcome back. Thank you for listening to Jim's story. I just want to shout out a couple of things that we are doing new this month. Um, we are planning on releasing a new episode and a new type of episode um, this month. And the topic is sharing interesting best worst stories of dating slash Valentine's since it's February. Um, I thought it would be interesting to have my girlfriend who is a licensed professional counselor for I think five or six years and bring her in here and have us kind of discuss interesting stories that you may bring to light. Um, so it's one a way to kind of add a different layer to this show, something that's maybe a little bit more fun at times, a little bit more lighthearted, and maybe funny, maybe a wide range of experiences, but it also gives you the opportunity to share your story that doesn't feel as big as sharing this entire story. So really, I want to encourage you out there to send a little piece of your story. Um, this month is best worst dating or Valentine's stories. And, and you can stay completely anonymous. Um, you don't have to record anything through voice. It's really just either through on Instagram DMing us, or if you go to our website at the survivor story podcast.com, there is a, if you go to the top right of the first page, there is a navigation title that says share a story. And if you click on that, you'll see the prompt and you'll see a little contact form to write a little snippet of your story just so that we can share it on one of these episodes. So please go out and do that. The more stories we get, the more we have to kind of pick and choose from, from different ones that may be interesting and appealing and also have like different layers and different experiences and emotions. So thank you for sharing your stories, for sharing yourselves in whatever capacity that you do. Um, if you want to connect with us again at the survivor story on Instagram or Facebook and um, also check out what we're doing at the survivor story podcast.com. So the survivor story podcast.com there we have journal articles, different ways for us to connect and interact. And yeah, also, you know, feel free to, if you have questions or feedback or things you may want to connect in about, you can do that through our website. Um, again, thank you so much for your support. Let's move on to the Q&A with Jim and I. Thank you very much for sharing your story. Mm, thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, mm, there's just so much there. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people will share like, like certain life events, but your thing was just... Um, so big to almost just hold on to all of it yeah i <clears throat> i think part of it for me is that i don't really know of what i was like before the trauma started and so mm -hmm. i never had a gauge it just it started as soon as you know at such a young age i just 
I never knew what it might be like just to frolic and play without the trauma. And so it's been, it's finally coming to me now. (laughs) Yeah. You're frolicking and playing now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm trying. I am trying. Yes. Learning how. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was wondering with all that, like, when did you realize that things weren't okay or weren't, weren't um, normal? I think that's kind of the same. I, I, I think I always, I think I relied on TV and maybe other people's like neighbors or other people's existence to tell me that things weren't this weren't normal in my own life. Hmm. Because, but that's why, I mean, it's, it was important for me to not just the abuse, but also the bullying. And then also just my sister, you know, like there was, I never felt like I had a respite. Even my stepmother would hit us and, you know, slap us and stuff. And I just thought it was because my mom and my dad, both of them, even though they were divorced, neither one of us, neither, neither one of them hit us. And my mom was, even though she was crazy and like doing the thing that she was doing, like, uh, I knew I, I held on to the tiny little bits that seemed like there was a glimmer of normal somewhere. Mostly I found that outside my, my immediate experience. Yeah. So, so you're saying throughout, throughout it, there was a sense of, um, this wasn't okay. Yes. 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 Yeah. I mean, I, I think, well, this is, this is actually would be getting into my screenplay and that is like, I think I relied heavily on TV to cope Mm -hmm. and I relied heavily on music and, you know, hearing, that's why also saying like Barbara Streisand or, you know, other women who were singing songs about being strong. I was like, why can my mom not be that strong? Why, Mm. what if I can be that strong? I can be as strong as that woman is singing about. And I just was like, I got to hold on to that. That really, like people say I was resilient. Like my therapist tells me and (laughs) other people told me I was resilient. And I go, I think I was holding on to the, just these tiny little threads. I th- also agree that there is a great resiliency um, within you because there is a lot, a lot, a lot there. It's a very, a very heavy story, hmm. a very powerful story. And I'm very, very appreciative to have known you and to have heard it and to walk with you through the work. Mm-hmm. Is it okay if I shared that I met you at the bridge? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, that's, that's what makes this possible is that I, because of what we experience at the bridge, I have such trust in you. You've, uh-huh. You know my story. I know your story. And when people know each other's stories, it allows for all those similar all those similarities of experience, whether, I mean, and our stories are different and yet uh-huh. the same in a lot of ways. Yes. Thematically the same, specifically different. And, but that, that allows for trust. And so um, it just makes it easy to be here and having this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have this. I, I don't know that I could have this conversation with just anyone. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> just our experience of when I like listened to your story, I felt so connected to you. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think one of the funniest things about that experience um, at the bridge was that 
I would I would sometimes do pretty decent holding my tears in. Mm-hmm. But then you would st- <laughs> <laughs> you would just start opening up and it would just break me down mm-hmm. every single time. Um and I think I think it's just cuz I I um understood and related to the resiliency and the pain that you um held and could speak to. Yeah. Um, I'm also really amazed about how emotionally aware you are. Hmm. I think really what I got from a lot of your story was um, just how emotionally and personally aware that you are about your experience and how that shifted and shaped you and things that you're working on. Do you feel like you were always um, that emotionally aware? Yeah. Uh, so um just the tears are uh, just have always been a natural reaction for me. And I was called a baby and told not to cry and, you know, like humiliated for crying um, a lot, a lot when I was a kid. And, and the, the tears have always come really easily. And then now they come even, they come just as easy and I don't have the shame around it now. And in fact, I have friends at work that call me GDC for short, which stands for goddamn crier. And we laugh because that's, I I take it, I wear it as a badge of honor because I was humiliated for so long for crying. And so, uh, yeah, I, I have always had access to my emotions. I just couldn't say the thing that was happening to me because that was the thing. And so imagine just a child crying and then never being able to explain what was going on, the pain, whether they put their hand on a stove or whether they were choking, like never being able to say what was going on for years. I mean, so it was a decade, it was more than a decade that I, that I, all I could do was cry and not explain why, but that meant I cried when an ice cream cone dropped or when Uh I didn't get dinner on time or all this stuff. So I've always had access. It just always came out sideways as my therapist likes to say. And so now getting to tell my story and be very clear about what happened, it all comes out kind of straightforward. It still comes out sideways sometimes, but, uh, mostly, yeah, I've always had the access, I will say. Yeah. But there also seems to be a, uh, like, a an awareness of, you know, just how you said, how you, you have the ability to tell it straightforward. And I don't think that's an easy thing for a lot of people to access, to be able to put their finger on, this is what happened and this is the result. Um, and this is what I'm working on. I just think there's a, uh, you have a lot of emotional awareness around, um, being able to name, name things really well and call it, call it as it is. Mm. You also mentioned in your story that you were learning who you were, Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, throughout it, you, you lost the sensitive identity. Mm -hmm. When do you feel, um, or in, do you feel that you've learned who you are? Yeah, I, um, I think I've struggled. The chameleon was always something I was very aware of. I I knew, I mean, I, I had friends and I had boyfriends that would smoke. And so I started smoking and I had uh, friends that would eat. And so I'd eat when they were hungry. And so it was always really easy to, to be very codependent 
and parasitic in my relationships to people and therefore never knowing who I was. Like if I was hungry or tired or do I even want a cigarette? No. And so the idea that now I, I know who I am and how I feel. And so much of it is just like internal. Like it's just now that I know I have feelings and that if I start feeling a weird sensation in my chest or my stomach, I'm like, oh, what is that? Like, I want to know what that is because I feel like I've sort of cleaned out a lot of the wreckage. And so that's, yeah, I do feel like that. And then, you know, and I had so much of my, you know, I would have, I would have found dance when I was two, if I could have, I would have found ballet and played with Barbie dolls more openly and done all those things if I could have, but you know, society and my family of origin, like my stepfather and stepbrother, like didn't allow for it. And so I had to pretend something else. So that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think kind of answers your other question too. It's just like the more I had to be quiet about anything I thought I wanted to latch onto. I couldn't tell people I like Barbara Streisand. I couldn't tell people I like musical theater. I couldn't tell people a lot of, and I couldn't tell them that I was being abused. I had, so now I'm like, I sing it from the mountaintops. Now I'm like, I let people know and then they can decide if they want to hang out with me or not. Yeah. One of my <clears throat> real experiences of you is very strong in boundaries. Mm. Um, which <laughs> seems, what? I just, I just sort of was like, hee hee, like that's funny because <laughs> that's, yeah. Sounds like that wasn't a theme growing up, but something you've really worked to um, be and create in your life. For sure. And my mother and I were enmeshed. I mean, we weren't just, I mean, like we were attached. I didn't know where she ended and I began. It, it just, um, you know, we were one unit running for a car. We were y- one unit eating together, thinking together, talking together. I mean, and so that was the, that's, you know, my qualifying in person right there for how to not separate myself from Mm -hmm. anyone else. So yeah, I've had to learn boundaries and she's sort of my, the cornerstone of that. If I can establish boundaries around her and who I am, then I can, I can do that with anybody. That's really powerful. I, I, I really believe that as well. Like the the ones almost that are like the hardest mm-hmm. that have the most history of not setting up boundaries. Like if you can create boundaries around that, everything else is going to be easier to set boundaries around. For sure. What do you think aided in your healing the most? Hmm. I would say I have I've always thought I've always believed that there had to be something out there that would have me living a fuller wholer life I just always believed that even even when I thought I was gonna die and as a kid and then again um just about four years ago when I just was that suicidal I just had suicidal ideation I just still somewhere just I had something that had me hold on to the thought and sometimes it was just as simple as as songs. I mean, as, as silly and corny as that sounds, I mean, that, that was a huge lifesaver. Um, and so, oh my gosh, would you repeat your question? Cause I have a, 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 a better ending to that. You're good. Uh, 
uh, what aided your healing the most? Ah, and then the truth is, and then getting to the bridge. Like when I finally got myself to the bridge to recovery, um, I was, and, and we started to dig in deep and we had all these modes that we had like group therapy and telling our stories and like just saying the thing that we could never say out loud in front of someone else and just be held for it. Like just be held and comforted for doing that. I was like, oh my God, that's all I want. I just want to be able to say this stuff out loud. I just want to be able to say it aloud as clear as I can and let it go into the ether and then be done with it. Mm. And, and, and so I'll say, I mean, I think the bridge has been, it's just like truly has saved my life. Hmm. And then since then I'd say 12 step program has also saved my life because I, 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 I still go all the time. Nice. You also mentioned how big meditation was in your life. Yeah. And I'm curious on how do you meditate? Cause everyone kind of has a different idea of, um, meditation. I'm just curious what, what works for you? Sure. So, um, I haven't gotten past meditating for more than 15 minutes at a time. So start yeah. as 10 at the bridge, if we were going to get breakfast. Right. And then, um, and now it's 15 minutes, which for me, um, my meditation practice is usually two things. One is sometimes it's about clearing my mind. And then sometimes it's about letting the thing that is on my mind float up so I can really look at it and hold it in front of me. So mm-hmm. if I had a bad day at work or if I had a moment with my partner or if I, you know, like something's going on or I just have a feeling like, and I concentrate, like, what is that feeling that's coming up? And I'll just let myself kind of figure out where, where do I start? Is it a feeling? Is it something that I said to my boyfriend? What is it? And then let that come up so I can really look at it. And usually it's the thing itself. And then oftentimes it's a reminder of, of a way of being from my past. I, I don't know, you know, like if I mm-hmm. yelled at him, it's because I've also, you know, like for whatever I may have done in my childhood, like it just really is that clear to me. So yeah. that's what meditation is for me. It's, sometimes it's about just clearing it out. And then sometimes it's about letting the thing that comes up in me and go, oh, what is that? And why is that? And not really having to do anything with it. Beautiful. Um, yeah, I was also curious on what does a higher power look like to you? And um, you can name if it has <laughs> physical characteristics. I would really like to tell the story from the bridge, if that makes Oh my gosh. Well, we can start with that because truly I did not have a higher power until then. I was like, I was one of those, I do not... I went to a Christian school for the first six years of my life for the, of my schooling. And, um, God never made sense. Those stories never made sense. I didn't just never made sense. I mean, I had enough to contend with that anything, um, outside of my existence, outside of my being abused, like didn't make sense to me. I didn't finish reading a book until I was a junior in high school, like my first novel. So hearing, like, I, I, if I couldn't meet Jesus and talk to him and understand what he was about, it wasn't going to, like, enter my consciousness. I just couldn't have that comprehension. So when I finally got to the bridge and um, one of the guys there, Sean, Sean said something about a disco ball, like someone at his rehab told him about a disco ball. And so I was like, I can get behind a disco ball. A disco ball <laughs> is light and reflection and fun and joyous and dancing. And so I made one out of tinfoil and, 
And oh my gosh, I can, I'll let you tell that story if you want, because it was amazing. It was super powerful for me. But then, but then since then it has become, it's, it's twofold. It is one is um, theater has always been a huge part for me. Like the idea of people coming together and, and creating something on a stage and doing it live and telling a story and making it bigger than one person could ever do is huge for me. Like, um, so seeing a production. And so I can close my eyes and picture, um, my higher power. I can, I picture both like an empty stage, um, as, as that. And then the other is, um, the cosmos, like just, I pull way back and I look at how tiny, tiny, tiny I am. Um, there, I think at the end of men in black, they pull out so far that there's like a giant monster in the universe holding like, like playing with a planet something like that. Like, and I picture something like that. Like we are so <laughs> tiny and insignificant that I feel like I can make wise choices and for myself and, and no one else, like nothing really matters. I don't have to control anything cause I can't, that's how tiny yeah. and insignificant it all is. So that's really what it looks like for me. Hmm. That's uh, really amazing to see how it shifted. Oh yeah. I haven't heard of like all of that for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I just remember, I remember the disco ball (laughs) um, and it would like, it was hanging in the barn. Uh huh. um, And it was honestly really amazing to like wake up and see every morning kind of feeling like there's this, like, you know, your higher power. um, But you know, this like, thing that was just kind of like looking over and taking care of us and just like allowing like no matter whatever the heaviness we were going through that Mm -hmm. there's just like this lightness and funness that was still there Mm -hmm. and i also really want to know how amazing um of like how much society and family of origin um tried to keep you hidden Mm and saying that like what you loved who you were wasn't okay and just how much that didn't work Mm -hmm. and how much of you has shined through it all yeah i think we're experiencing that right now so much so much trying to suppress other people for who they are and what they believe and where they live and what they want and gosh i mean it would just save us all so much grief i'm 51 now i mean i've been dealing with this for, for a really long time. And I'm like, this, the sooner everyone gets to just embrace who they are and other people can also see who they are, get past their own fears around it, the better off we're all going to be. But because that's all it is, is, is other people's fears projected onto them. Yeah. Um, where do you see yourself for the future in like five years, 10 years? Doesn't matter. Do you have, do you even look um, that far ahead? Do you have any ideas of where you'd like to be? Yeah, it's still scary to look that far ahead in some, you know, sometimes I, I've never, cause I've never looked that far ahead. Yeah. Uh, um, and, um, but so I don't do it in time frame. but I am, I've been working on a screenplay for the last year and a half cool. and um, I would love to see that movie get made and Mm -hmm. and like really get made like i've talked about it for a really long time i've had this story if you read my my thesis um at louisiana state you'd see i'm writing about 
my abuse. You know, I've been telling this story for a long time, but I really want to have this movie made. And mm -hmm. I think it would be, um, it would just really be great because um, I'd love to see that movie. Yeah. So that's probably the next five years, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I would, I would love to see that movie too. So please keep me um, tuned in with that process. Will do. Um, what does your ideal day look like um, nowadays? Hmm. Yeah. So my ideal day, uh, I move a lot slower these days, um, <laughs> uh, which is nice. I mean, I used to be like a speedy walker around here, around my work, and I just like crew, like just zoom everywhere. And so I, I move at a at a normal pace these days. And um, if I can just really be in touch with myself in the morning and just do my meditation, make myself something to eat and just like be really easy on myself and then um, engage with um, my, my boyfriend and then also with other people. I love my, I, I enjoy my work. If, you know, coming to work is, is part of that. I, I wish I had more time to write. I have to squeeze in my writing. I usually get up at five every day to, to write in the morning and then take a big chunk out of the weekends to write. So if I had my ideal day would involve several hours I'd have like half time of work <laughs> and half time of like my own writing. Uh -huh. And then, um, and then, yeah, connecting with, with people, uh, Beautiful. yeah, would be great. Beautiful. So we have three last questions My that, goodness. We ask, that we ask every guest. The, I mean, I guess you kind of answered that one. Um, in that, my question was kind of like, what are you up to, uh, now jobs, passions, interests? Um, yeah, but I, I think you kind of answered that with the I, I, ideal day, um, yeah. in the screenplay, which mm -hmm. we're all looking forward to. <laughs> if there was a, uh, your favorite book to recommend, it could be either like a fun fiction type of book or something that really like helped you along the way or your process. What book would that be? Yeah. So, um, well, my favorite book is, I want to tell you all my favorite things, but my favorite <laughs> book is, is, um, the bluest eye by Toni Morrison. And, but the book that helped me the most is, um, and we talked about it, off offline for a minute is the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. And, um, it's been amazing. It's, it is a, it is a hard read at, for, at parts cause it does, there, there are moments of sharing other people's trauma, but it has been really interesting to, to read and see how my body has held on to so much of my trauma and that I get to release it. Yeah. It's amazing how, much wisdom our body has mm, mm -hmm. um, and how much knowledge it holds of what we experienced. Mm -hmm. the, I will have to check out the bluest eye. It's um, not the most uplifting story, but, um, but it is, <laughs> but it is, that's kind of, that's, yeah, that's kind of been I, my, my mode is I, I love stories where, yeah, people talk about, um, like, did you see the latest sci-fi movie or whatever? And I'm like, you know what? Give me terms of endearment or, you know, like a real yeah, kind of movie where I see real people interacting. That's my kind of movie. And so that's kind of what The Bluest Eye is like 
Yes, I, I I have the same kind of taste. I like anything that's kind of like real and brings out the feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ring me out. I yeah. literally, I, I Google like movies that'll make me cry. That's, what I <laughs> that's, that's my genre. <laughs> um, uh, and then the last question is, uh, what would you tell someone who is experiencing similar hardships? Ooh. Oh, shoot. That makes me want to um, tell of When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron. That's my other favorite book. And that is, mm -hmm. it's a whole book about self-compassion. And, and the sooner, the sooner you can love yourself, even just the tiniest bit, what is one thing? What is the one hair, the one fingernail, the one iota of a thing that you can love about yourself and then grow it out from there yeah beautiful thank you everybody for listening to episode eight with jim i hope you enjoyed it i hope you got a lot out from it i hope you know that you are not alone that there are others who may be experiencing similar things, who have dealt with similar emotions, who have really been in rock bottom and made their way out. So whatever you're experiencing, just know that you're not alone in those feelings and how bad or good or surprising or shocked it may feel. Um, you can always reach out to us at the Survivor Story podcast.com again check out our journal articles check out ways you can be involved to either be a guest on the podcast or just share your story for that new episode that new type of episode that we're going to have coming up so thank you very much reach out to us at the survivor story on instagram and appreciate your support appreciate you coming back and back and listening to these episodes and interacting with us and telling us how much you really enjoy getting from them so remember always be gentle with your heart take care <laughs>